So we're in chapter 9 of Romans. Anybody need a Bible? There's a whole bunch of Bibles over there that you could even take home with you if you want. Uh, but um, there's also Bibles behind me on the top shelf. Romans 9, and we're going to back up a little bit. I think we'll start with verse 11. Bev, would you read verses 11 through 16? Yet therefore the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So, if you didn't have the rest of the chapter to stew about, what would be your assessment of this passage? We, we talked about this at the end, but I think in order to understand what's left of the book, chapter eight, of chapter 9 of Romans, that uh, we need this passage. Did, did it say twins? I was talking about yes. Jacob and Esau. Oh, yeah. they're saying, okay. That's, they were twins, yeah. Oh, oh, Esau, that's right, that's right, Esau was born first, but of course. But they were twins. Yeah. I mean, just just these verses taken out of context, it sounds like God's rather arbitrary and kind of capricious in saying, okay, well, I pick, I, don't, I don't like you, you look funny, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll pick you, and, and we don't really have any say in the matter. This, this word election... Does uh, the Good News Bible have a different translation, Pastor? Well, mine. Okay. <laughs> what verse was that? 11. 11, it says, okay, 11, 11. I'm uh, curious what they do with election. 11, 12 together. But in order that the choice of the one son might be completely the result of God's own purpose, God said to her, the older will serve the younger. Okay, He's, that's verse 12. Can you back up a little bit? Okay, 10. I guess it just says it, but in order that the choice of one son might be completely the result of God's own purpose. Okay, the, the choice of one son might be completely the result of God's own purpose. So, do we have freedom? doesn't sound like it. Not even in the Good News Bible, it doesn't seem like we have freedom. Oh, but the choice of one son, what was it again? The choice... Oh. That uh, the choice of one son might be completely the result of God's own purpose. It, is it the choice that the son makes? Yeah, that's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah. is, is this a good translation? Because you read the original. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to defer to my my New Testament colleague because I'm I'm no <laughs> longer New Testament. <laughs> no, I, <haven't> <laughs> I mean, good news. I wouldn't rely on for close right. translation. It's more colloquial, right? But I, the the word election is is that is that an appropriate translation for? Well, even if it is, what does it mean? It is what? Even if it is an appropriate translation, what does the word mean? Well, it, it, isn't it, it choice, it, right? If it's suggesting that if it's suggesting that the choice of the son may be God's to God's purpose. 
he he may have a purpose, but it doesn't seem like that son who retained his free will made the right choice. Right? So it didn't it's not like he didn't have free will. Well what would happen if we mm-hmm. understood election or well I'm gonna read it in my translation and then try to break it down. Even this is N R S V. Is the Greek word. It's what? Eklage. Eklage. And it means purpose, plan, setting. That's the word purpose, but what about election? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Choice, selection, election. So it's eklage. Which means what? Choice, Choice. selection, election. So God's purpose of choice. So the problem with Greek is that you have a lot of genitives. (laughs) <laughs> especially in Romans. <laughs> and, and so you have the, the something of the X of Y. And, and it, it's hard for us English minds, English-speaking minds, to grasp how to break that down into simple, simple English. What does it mean, the purpose of election? <laughs> to that, New American Standard says choice. The purpose of choice. God's purpose according to his choice. There's two. There's the word purpose, and then there's a choice. But the Greek doesn't have his election or his choice. The his is supplied. His is so, supplied. It, but it, it, I'm assuming it could never be the choice of the individual. I would think so. Because it's the rest of the sentence here, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Focuses on God. It seems to me. Okay. So the, so the his is supplied. Yeah. Could you could you sort of read it without the supplied words, even though it's not going to make a lot of sense, maybe. Well, God's purpose it. according to choice. According to choice. According to choice. So kata. there's a preposition kata. It is yeah kat eklagen. In order that choice, yeah. And then it's two See that—that that seems two to me that of God remains. Seems to me that NSRSV let me down here because it just has the purpose of choice instead of the purpose according to choice. The Spanish Bible says maintain the purpose of God. You know, I learned a long time ago that it's not necessarily what you go through because you don't necessarily have a choice of what you go through, but it's how you go through it. That's where you're, whether you like it or hate it or resent it. That's where your choice lies. And there, the other thing is, is many are called, few are chosen. So God has this purpose, but you decide whether you're going to. But I don't know the rest of the context, so I don't know whether any of that fits. So, so. Uh, The context is Israel. They're the firstborn? It, he starts out of the chapter by saying, I wish my, that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the prophets, and from them, according to the flesh, comes the Messiah, who is over all. God bless forever. Amen. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And see, this, this is the problem. They are the chosen. God chose them. He elected them. So if God goes to the Gentiles... He must, his word has failed for his people because it's an exclusivism kind of problem. And particularly if Paul is saying 
in any way it isn't works, it is faith, that sounds very non-Israelite, as though God has shifted and changed his plan. And so, though this is, this is an, I'm, I'm standing back now here and, and looking at what Paul is dealing with. He is trying to establish several things, one of which is that it never was of works. <laughs> if you go back to the original Abrahamic covenant, and this is clear in Galatians and Romans, but if you go back to the original covenant <laughs> with Abraham, it was a covenant of trust. Abraham trusted God, and God counted that or considered that as his righteousness. So that's, that's one aspect. So now he's dealing with, did God break his promise? Which is horrific in ancient New Eastern culture. Uh, Israelite culture still the same probably as it was uh, when it was closer to say Babylon and, and Canaanite cultures there's there's still this, this sense of you make a promise you keep that promise against all odds so Jephthah a promise is the first thing that comes out of his house he makes a vow the first thing that comes out of his house he will offer as a burnt offering to God to Yahweh and the first thing that comes out of his house is his daughter <gasps> He doesn't think about doing a substitute, which would be about the Babylonian way. They would provide a substitute. He doesn't think about uh, asking God, you know, can I get out of this? He doesn't even consider that. He made his vow. He has to stay with it. And so he offers his daughter as a burnt offering. So I need, I'm, I'm trying to build for you the seriousness of a promise. For Yahweh to break his promises just means he's a faithless, untrustworthy God. So that's an argument the Judaizers are using to Paul to say this is why circumcision is so important because God made the promise and the promise is based is ratified by circumcision. Not if you read the Old Testament the way Paul does. So that's the context, and this is why he goes to Sarah. So let's 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 read this chat passage above because it is the immediate context. Uh, Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And this is a boomerang. How can he say that? If you're an Israelite, you're an Israelite, aren't you? I mean, they had it so cut and dried in Jesus' day, and I'm relying here on uh, Joachim Jeremiah's book on uh, Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. They had it down that you were a Jew and you were truly saved. If you could find your, trace your ancestry back to, I don't remember which generation that came out of exile from Babylon. Because they had traced that generation all the way back to Abraham earlier. So if you could trace your genealogy back to that. You were you were saved. You were a Jew. If you were a true Israelite, you were saved. Could you say that verse again? It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. So wasn't Paul both Jewish and Greek? No. As far as his parents? He was, I believe he was a mother... I think you're thinking of um, John Mark. Is it John Mark or Barnabas? Timothy. Timothy. Timothy, That was it. Timothy. Oh, he was both. Yeah. Yeah. 
Paul's a whole, whole he was, he was a, from the tribe of Benjamin. But he was a Roman citizen. Oh, that's yeah. the other thing he was. He was yeah, Roman. he was a Roman citizen, but he was, his father acquired it, I think, is what he implies. The citizenship? Yeah. Okay. Think about Adventism for a moment. We are the chosen, are we not? We consider ourselves a spiritual chosen, spiritual Israelite community. We just use a different word. Yeah, we use uh, the remnant. But we have the baggage behind it. What if we said not all Seventh-day Adventists are really Seventh-day Adventists? Mm -hmm. Now, we don't have as much of a problem with that as Paul's hearers. But if we said we're not the only part of the remnant, Yes, that's then a worse one. Yes, 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 that's a worse one. That God has a whole bunch of people who are part of the remnant outside the Adventist Church. Or if we said, like, we're the smallest part of the remnant, <laughs> then, yeah. uh, which committee would take you up? <laughs> I'm kidding. Take me up or take me out. <laughs> but that gives you a taste of what Paul is up against. For him to say that not all Israelites are. Israelites. That is huge. And so he, it sounds like he's implying that God is not going to keep his promise to all his people. So uh, I, I'm trying to follow his argument here very closely. But then in the Old Testament too, though, there was that the idea was there already, but they don't catch it. That circumcision as it stated then, was just not only the physical, but it was also representing the they, the prophets took circum there. The prophets took circumcision and said, you know, the flesh yeah. isn't as important exactly. as what's on the heart. And be so circumcised in the heart. Ezekiel, already, Ezekiel does that. Like, we can yeah. lose the idea. Yeah. Actually, I maintain, and I think Paul maintains the same thing, but not he doesn't see it quite the same way I read it. I maintain that circumcision was not God's original plan. That it comes because Abraham's faith falters. And so God does this little thing of the animals. That's a that was the way they did covenants in his time. So God bends down to make a covenant. Actually, it's a land grant with Abraham uh, using those animals. And he walks between them, which is a magnificent condescension of God to take on the terms of the covenant. You can do this to me. You can cut me in pieces if I do not keep my terms of the covenant. Uh, it's, it's an amazing condescension. And then Abraham's faith falters again, and Ishmael is born. And so when Ishmael is 13, God says, Okay, you have taken on yourself the terms of my covenant. Well, that was my terms, but you have taken them on. Now, I'm adding this in to clarify why circumcision is, is a given at this point. Abraham did that by taking on a different wife than Sarah. He, he decided to fulfill the covenant himself. So he took on the terms. So God says, so we're going to cut a covenant. And keep in mind, when God establishes a covenant with Noah, he does not use the word cut. He does not use the word Hebrew, it's karat. He does not use that word. He uses the word kum, which means to set up, to establish. So cutting, and, so covenant doesn't necessarily mean cutting? Well, it or? did in the ancient Near East. The karat term was used widely in the ancient Near East to determine covenant. But God doesn't use that term. 
he comes to Abraham and he says, uh, Abraham trusts a God and it says God counted that as his righteousness. Abraham, there's no cutting until the animals. When Abraham's faith falters, then there's the cutting of the covenant. So God says, in a sense, says to Abraham, okay, since because of Ishmael, we're going to have to cut the covenant. And you're going to be cutting that covenant closer to home. Hmm. Circumcision. I, I, I see my fellows in the class when I teach this in Books of Moses quail <laughs> at the thought of that being what circumcision is about. So it's a cutting of the covenant, and that's the sign of the covenant um, because that's how he cut it. He, if he's going to keep, if he's going to do God's covenant for him, he has to take the sign on himself of cutting the covenant in his flesh. So when he when he first establishes the co- uh, the co- the covenant vocally, it, it, this word that's used is not cutting, and and it's just a vocal thing. There's no action. Is Abraham trusts God, and God considered that as righteousness. Those are the terms. Okay, and then there's and God a, does it, and then there's a faltering of faith, and so then there's this other cutting word that's so, used. So then we bring. So in, there's two separate words used in different contexts for covenant right. that are translated covenant that actually mean different. They're things. not translated covenant. Oh, they're not. They're translated to establish or variously to cut the covenant. So with Noah, it's established. With Genesis, there's not even a verb used. There's just the covenant. And the covenant, I don't think... Oh, I don't want to get sidetracked. Remind me of what the act of faltering of his faith was. Farther down, initially, God says, I'm going to give you a descendants. And Abraham believes God, and God counts that as his... Righteousness. Then God says, I'm going to give you this land. And he gives the land. Abraham says, how do I know that you're going to give it to me? His faith falters. So God says, okay, bring me animals. Cut them in half. He cuts them in half. He knows exactly what to do. God doesn't even give him directions what to do with those animals. He just tells him what he wants to bring. And Abraham cuts them up. And God passes between them in the symbolization of the torch and the, and the brazier. So that's what the is, first fault. What, what does that mean? Space. I've never been able to figure out why is he cutting, why is he passing? Because if that. you cut, it has to do with the same thing as Moses sprinkling the blood on the people to ratify the covenant at Sinai. If you pass through those pieces, you are saying, I will keep my terms of the covenant and you may kill me if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. So that's what it's saying. Is it is that if I don't do this, this will be me, my you, result? You. Huh. That's what yeah. they did in the ancient Near East. They would sacrifice yeah. an animal when they made a promise to make sure that the promise was good. Like today, we sign a document. They still do it today. They'll, they'll in the Middle East. They will still take tribes. Will still take an animal out there. You'll see it on CNN. They'll take an animal out there and they'll hack the thing in two. It's, bru- it's brutal. 
and to do this. But I don't think they know why they're doing it. <laughs> I think they just do it because that's what they've always done, and somehow that means it You know, it it's possible them. that it's lost its original meaning, but we have an example of this, I believe, in Assyria and in Mari, where they, they cut an animal in pieces, and they, you know, basically... Uh, there's actually a ceremonial statement of, and just as I have cut this animal in pieces, may may my body be cut in pieces if I do not keep the terms of the covenant. Do, do we have any other liter- body of literature that might help to establish that as a principle? How do we how do we know that's the case? Wait, because we have an ancient Near Eastern text that does uh, the ones I just stated. Oh. The ones in Assyria and the ones in Mari. That, that imply that this is the consequence that will come upon well, me. Well, they're actually stated in the text. That, that this, is the, this represents the consequence that will come upon me right. if should I fail. In other words, this, this animal represents the person. So, a, so Abraham cut the animal and God walks between it? Mm-hmm. And, and he walks between it, why? Because God is saying... You may cut me in pieces if I do not keep my promise. It's it's just it's a marvelous condescension on the part of God. What what, what did he, did Christ's death on the cross somehow represent that too? I've had students bring that to me, and I I haven't been sure quite what to do it. But in a sense, you could say that that you know they didn't Jesus God didn't fail Israel, but Israel failed God. And by putting him on the cross, Jesus says, all right, I take it, but I don't deserve it. Is there, is there some symbol, there's some act within that crucifixion that represents a cutting? That can't, no. Nothing? Because you have, this, is a, Roman, this is a Roman thing now. This is not a Jewish or Roman, ancient Roman. or Eastern. I see. Roman is different. Hmm. Well, let's get back to this. So, for not all Israelites truly belong to Israel. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants, but it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. So are you, so are you a descendant of Abraham if you simply have his faith, not his bloodline? Well, we're going to come to that, I think. Okay. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's back up. And not all of Abraham's children are his true descendants. Mm-hmm. But it is through Isaac that descendants shall be named for you. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as descendants. Is that bloodline or walking in the flesh? This is the promise. No, I mean the... This is the covenant of promise. See, Paul makes a great distinction between the covenant of the promise and the covenant of works. In other words, if Abraham did something to merit the co- the promise, it would be a covenant of works. But God makes the promise, and all Abraham has to do is trust that he will keep his promise. So it, what he's saying is, this is not about circumcision. Keep in mind, circumcision is right there in the foreground, in front of everybody. It's the white elephant in the room <laughs> that nobody will talk about, but it's there. And, Ab- and Abraham is, I mean, Paul is going to take us away from the concept of circumcision to the concept of the promise. 
The promise of the land and the, the seed, the descendants. Through you, the real promise the, is the through promise you all. And the real promise, let me get to Genesis Jesus 15. Coming. The Messiah, the firstborn. The real promise. Genesis 3.15? Well, I'm not talking about Genesis 3.15. I'm talking about Genesis, um, I think it is 12. It is 12. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. Promise number one. And I will bless you. Promise two. I will make your name great. Promise three. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who cur- bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all families of the earth will be blessed. Yeah. And I think maybe in that is perhaps part of the problem that we have when we come to this this text here, in that when we hear God choosing, that perhaps we misunderstand what he means by choosing, and that somehow we conflate the idea of being chosen with being saved. Um, and that those, I think, are two separate things that God had chosen Israel for a specific purpose, but by choosing Israel, he wasn't not choosing everybody else. He was using them to be a blessing to everyone else. And I I was almost... Um, And that, and so, by, and so it wasn't that he was was eliminating uh, the others, and that that that's, in our mind, it's like, well, if I choose you, then I'm not choosing you. I mean, I want you on my team. I don't want you on my team, uh, kind of thing. Um, and that that perhaps is kind of the underlying assumption that we make that then makes it yeah. difficult to it, read this We text. add in so, the not part. Exactly. Um, and, and that's what I was, I almost pointed that out earlier, but I didn't feel I had enough substance for it yet. That he's not talking about his purpose of rejection. He's talking about his purpose of election. Mm -hmm. So if we read on, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Well, it does sound like talking about salvation here. But the children of the promise are counted as descendants. So it's about the promise. It's not about circumcision. The promise and of the, being a blessing. And, the, and right. the promise was they would be a blessing to the whole to world. To the whole world. About this time I will return, for, for this is what the promise said, about this time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Nor is that all. Something similar happened to Rebecca when she had conceived children by one husband, our ancestor Isaac, even before they had been born, or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose of election might continue, not by works, but by his call. That's Paul's point. It isn't how God decides who's saved or lost. That is not the issue. It is the issue of establishing that this is by the promise. This is by God's call. The elder shall serve the younger. As it is written, I have loved Jacob and I have hated Esau. What then are we to say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And there's nothing he says, and this he's not he's not halfway quoting. He's quoting everything God said in that at that juncture. 
God didn't say, and I will hate those whom I hate and have wrath on those who have wrath. He doesn't say that. He's only talking about, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How is that different, the last two thoughts that you said? He's not addressing people who are saved. I mean, addressing people who are lost. He's addressing people who are saved. He's, he's not going to go to people who are lost yet. Now, Paul will come to this later on. It will seem like he comes to it. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but upon God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I have raised you up for the very purpose of showing my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he chooses, and he hardens the heart of whomever he chooses. Now we come to a problem, and this, this is where the problem gets in. Is, does God harden people's hearts? Do we not have choice in this matter? Does God harden people's hearts? And of course, he's building this on Pharaoh. God hardening the heart of Pharaoh, which the Bible says God hardened his heart. The Bible says is that he hardened his own heart. And the Bible says, therefore, his heart was hardened. Which one are you going to take? Both. Can I go back a little bit as far as being a blessing to everybody and that being the promise? Um, it seems like that's based on his original plan of redemption because Adam and Eve sinned. And so he has a plan for the Messiah to come. Mm-hmm. And so for the Messiah to come as a human, um, you have to choose a person to bear that child. And so he's choosing Mary, which is a line of, I mean, he's, it's, it's, he's choosing the line of he's Mary. He's choosing the line. So really he is making a choice because he, he needs to confine himself to humans. It's, it's not the Holy Spirit yet. And so it's, it's Jesus. And so to confine himself, he needs to make a choice of, and so he chooses Abraham's line. Again, like what David said, it's not about self. Are you, it's not the choice of are you saved or, well, how do you say that? It wasn't a choice of salvation. Or it's a choice of lineage. So the whole thing of choice and election is because of him having to condescend to having to choose that line because he wants to, and the blessing is Jesus, the Messiah. Again, wanting to spread that, um, I think I think what makes it difficult is this word mercy. So he has mercy on whomever he chooses and he hardens the heart of whoever he chooses and then the next verse says you will say to me then why does he, then he does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But in who indeed are you a human being to argue with God? What will what is molded say to the one who molds it? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience the objects of wrath that is made for destruction? 
And what if he has done so in order to make known the riches of his glory for the objects of his mercy, which he has prepared before him for glory, including us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Those are the hard lines right there. Well, his, his word doesn't return to him void. And it and it won't be to the glory of God that initial perish after probation closes. And so when people have made their mind up, it's not necessary that anybody die anymore because it's not affecting anybody else's life. And so the people that he shows mercy to, there is a quali- there is a pre qualification, and it is that they are, have an open mind and they will receive it. And those that he shows wrath to, uh, there's a pre qualification, and that is is that they have decided. Against, but but here's how our Calvinistic friends will read this. Predestination. For who are you, a human being, to argue with God? Will what is molded say to the one who molds it, "Why have you made me like this?" This is about God making us vessels of wrath or objects of mercy. I'm I'm deliberately mm-hmm. reading it mm-hmm. through this lens. Through that lens, because. This is what we need to grapple with, and we need to try to find some way of understanding this that still is true to the text without making us into a predestinarian, putting us in a predestinarian construct. I think what we need to do is pause and think back to how Paul Mm -hmm. defines God's wrath. Yes. How does Paul define God's wrath in Romans 1? God's given up. God giving giving people people up. up. By the way, he did not get that out of thin air. When I did my master's thesis on Romans 1 and 3, I wondered a lot about why he used paradidomi, which is the Greek word for giving up, why he used that three times, and why he picked that particular term without an object. When in the Gospels, that word is used for Jesus being handed over to the the Roman and Jewish authorities to be tried and crucified. Paul uses it differently. He uses it, I think, five times in his books, maybe long, maybe more. It's been a while since I looked at my master's thesis. He uses it a number of times without an object. He's not given over to. He's just given up. I wondered that for years. I I'd finished my master's and went and taught and came back to PUC and started a doctoral program, and I was still wondering this. And one Sabbath I decided to look at Isaiah 53 in the Septuagint. And I was surprised to find that the suffering servant is given up three times. Hmm. And he's given up to sin. He's given up to death. And I concluded that's where Paul got the use of paradidomy and why he uses it three times in Romans 1. So, if we keep that in mind, when God gives people up, he takes away his choice over them. He's letting them go. His choice of salvation. His choice of salvation, he's, he's, he's given that up. This is a passive act, not an active act. His choice of salvation for them. Yeah. He's, he, when he gives people up, 
He gives them up to the consequences they have chosen. Their choices. So their choices. Their choices. No they have. They, it's they no longer his choice. choice. It's their choice. Okay. So if we read this into Paul's words here about wrath, his choice is for everybody to be saved. But if if the yeah, the cup of iniquity is not all full yet. Yeah. If more. if yeah, and if. This isn't about. This doesn't answer the whole problem because we still have the words. Why have you made me like this? And he uses the potter, like the lump of clay has no choice of its own, and God makes you. And it's like, wait a minute, Paul. We have a choice, don't we? So it hasn't solved all the problems, but it does open up a little bit of an optional way of looking at this. I would like to propose to you another way of dealing with this, and this is a a principle, and hermeneutic principle. Divine determinism was a pre- major prevailing belief system of the ancient world. Divine what? Divine determinism. By divine determinism, I mean God or the gods Cause makes everything. the decision, causes everything. Say that again. God or the gods cause everything. Determine everything. It's the idea of happen. fate. Yeah, it, it's kind of like fate. And and then for the Mesopotamians, it was fate. They actually used the word shimtu to describe fate or destiny. That language of divine determinism runs through the entire Bible. Jesus uses it, Paul's using it here. It's prevalent in the Old Testament. Pharaoh's uh, heart. Uh, that, well, if it hardened, then God must have done it. And, it was um, his destiny. Yeah. Right. It was he. Yeah. Well, now, Ellen White has an interesting way of treating that. She says that there could have been a pharaoh more willing to let Israel go, put on the throne. But God had a hand in putting that mm-hmm. pharaoh on the throne because he knew that pharaoh would harden his heart. So that's how she ad- mm-hmm. ad- adopts that kind of reasoning. But... Um, this is the problem we're, we're dealing with, is this language of divine determinism. Divine. Determinism. Or fate. Divine fate. Now, there's a way to get around that and to ask the question, how did God harden Pharaoh's heart? And the way he hardened Pharaoh's heart was to reveal himself to Pharaoh. You can't harden yourself against something unless that something is revealed to you. Mm-hmm. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart by sending him the truth. And that's how God chooses people, is by revealing himself to them and calling them. Here's what's interesting. He, okay, I can't quite remember the words, but he he shows mercy to who he's going to show to, and he shows wrath to who he's going to show to. So here's the thing. You show the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to two different people. One receives it as mercy, and the other one's hardened against it. What One's like, get out of here, you know? And, I mean, to the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greek, it's foolish. But that doesn't mean, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the end for that person at that particular time, because they may not, have, they may not be yet in a position where they've been put up against the wall where they need it, Okay. They may be thriving with their power, but, you know, 
when their power base diminishes because God brings that act about, that, that image of Christ's death can come back to them at that time. And then they have another decision to make, receive it or reject it again. But I, when, they, when, when, you're brought, when, you're, when you're on top, you can reject it. When you're on the bottom, you can still reject it or receive it. So he goes through the whole cycle. But I, and, to and, me, and Pharaoh fits that perfectly. Yeah. Because Pharaoh is up against the wall. He's up against the wall. If, if you read, if it is true that the, um, I can't think of the, the name, Mert, Mertef tablets. Mernepta. Mernepta. Not, not the Mernepta Steely. I'm talking about the ones that talk about all the disasters falling on Egypt. And I, if it were, if it were, the if it were t- uh, text that describes all of dis- disaster after disaster of Egypt and the Pharaoh who is, is depicted with worry lines. Uh, the artist actually draws it with worry lines. You mean there's the a time period? You mean there's an authentic well, document that comes from that period Scott, of time? No, it, here's <laughs> the problem: no. the dating, the dating is supposedly off, yeah. and that's the debated issue. The problem is that there's there's a whole period of time that's a dark period of time. They don't know anything about it, and if you collapse that period of time, it fits perfectly. I know. So it, I've, it, I've been it, it could I've be, been uh, influenced by that video, that the documentary. Is that the one that has the big long? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I know I, what you're talking about. Yeah. I have it uh, at home. The, the something of Exodus. Yeah. Anyway, I show it to my students actually in Books of Moses. Can um, I share? Can I share something? Um, when I when I first became a believer, my 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 parents are university um, professors. Very well respected, but Darwin and everything else. So it was a big shock to me 25 years ago when I made the decision I made because I was very much influenced by their life. So I'm reading all of this stuff in scripture and I'm having to figure all of this stuff out like Alexander the Great is prophesied of. And in order for everything to be fulfilled, God's got to find an Alexander the Great that's going to do all of these same things. How does he do that? Well, and, and I've been baffling that. I've been baffling that one out for years and years. About five or five or seven years ago, a thought came to my mind, and um, he he knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He isn't going to violate free will. He is going to find these people that are going to ultimately make these decisions. But how does he even do that? You know, and the th- what came to me is. When Nebuchadnezzar was, his mind was taken away and he was put out for seven years. Um, and God, is, God has got to allow Satan's representative to fully manifest on earth. And the interesting thing, I'm breaking away for just a second here, but the interesting thing with the Catholic Church is that was, that was the instrument that God used to establish Satan's will on earth. And interestingly enough, historically, every king that came up against the Pope even though some of those popes struggled with how they were going to overcome that king because he didn't have any army of himself, there was always something that came to him to figure out how to out-coerce that king. And so the thing of it is you cannot, you cannot use satanic powers to fight Satan. You, can't, you are going to, when God has appointed the highest satanic force on earth, any other person that comes up against that trying to be more satanic to overcome that is going to lose. And it's just a repeated thing. So in the case with, um, so God is going to have these people in these positions that if you use anything other than his power to overcome them, you're going to lose. 
because they are the highest on the earth. So here's the thing. With Nebuchadnezzar, he took his mind away. He ended up with that. So what finally came up with me was that in reverse. God gave Alexander the Great the greatest mind, supernaturally. I mean, he... He can take his mind, can take Nebuchadnezzar's mind away. He he made he made his mind greater, and, and and he did it probably supernaturally. So he he had a he had a greater intellect, a, gr- a greater position to outthink everybody else faster than everybody else. He he did that. He can do that. He did that, but he didn't affect his will because he knew this entity from the beginning would make this decision. He would make he would he make the decision to go evil, and probably if we could if we could see the big picture and behind the scenes and the mess the evil and 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 righteous angels that are giving that entity messages, we would fully be convinced that he had the revelation and he backed away from it. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't have that perspective, but but when I get it from people, when I get the when I get the backroom understanding from people about what took place in people's lives years ago, I get why they made the decisions they made. The, peop- the voices that they heard, the, per- the people that went to them, and how they backed away from those things and hardened their hearts. And of course it all happens according to God's appointed times, too. And it may be that Paul understands that. We, don't, we can't get into his mind and find mm-hmm. out how much he understands of free will. And, and the interplay, but I think I think we can establish certain key points that we've come to today. Number one, this is the issue of the promise that God made to Abraham. Two, it involves His call. Three, His mercy is predominant. He brings in wrath only because why do some people reject? Because God gave them, He made them that way. He gave them that freedom of choice. Can we say that? In other words, he, to use the potter's illustration, he made us a lump of clay. It, could, it couldn't be a better illustration, really, because we are flesh. We are clay in the beginning. He made us a lump of clay. He made us so that we could harden our hearts. He made us so that we could choose him. Am I stretching Paul too far? This is the toughest chapter we'll have to deal with, and practically in the New Testament. It'll be easy right after this. I like the way you say it. He made us a massive clay. <laughs> and then, of course, it depends how we respond to him. His revelation. Yes, his revelation. He gets this from Jeremiah, doesn't he? Yeah. Jeremiah talks yeah. about going to the potter's house yeah. and seeing... And seeing he, the, make you over. Uh, he has to make us over. If the clay is what fails yeah. him, it's not the potter. Yeah, exactly. Yet the clay used in the course, no illustration has all the right. co- components to make and it I, I real. Think, so that you know, clay doesn't have decision, but I'm sure he's talking about us. We do have a decision. Right. So. Right. Well, it's clay made in the image of God. Exactly. Right. So it is. There we have a decision. The power to choose. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's pause with that until next week. Thank you for for uh, staying by for the ride. Excuse me, just one more thing, which I'm sure you've all heard. <laughs> like you just mentioned, we were made clay people. God made this all. And as we know, clay before the sun. <laughs> right. Either it's going to melt it. It's not going to melt it. It's going to be hard unless you're made. Of course, the hair again, you have to use the other 
the other illustration that is going to be either uh, what do you call it? clay or wax? A wax, that's what it is. Yeah. You're going to melt, or you're going to. You have to choose who you want to be yeah. in that sense. So yeah. I want to be clay yeah. for the relationship. You know, another like another body. example to bring into this is this the parable of the sower. Yes. The different kinds of ground. That's right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jesus actually does the same thing as Paul here mm-hmm. when he talks about the there's a, there's this good soil. Mm-hmm. Now the, the neat thing about Jesus' parable is that anybody can become good soil if they're willing to allow God to rework their ground, pull out the thorns and the thistles, and pull out and and, and rocks. <laughs> dig out the rocks and yeah. So. All right, let's bow our heads for closing prayer. Gracious Father, we, we thank you that you have made us the way you have to either accept the promise and trust you or to harden our hearts against it. We ask that we may appreciate that choice and we may make it in the way that will best glorify you and fulfill your purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Patterns of evidence. Patterns of evidence, that's right. That's the video.